Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Hello again, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to part two of my conversation with Eric West today. If you missed part one, just go back one episode in your podcast app. Okay, so let's get right down to details of things that are happening in the life of Ian Foster right now. We have a conversation with Mary Walsh coming up, a live event at The Rooms on October 20th. Come check this out, the very first live episode of If and When. Be in the audience for this, laugh, cry, take a picture on your smartphone and say that you went out somewhere so you can show to people that you do things because that's really important today that we all know that we have gone out and done things at some point that are not staying home and binge watching television. What else is going on? Well, we have a Christmas tour. It is now on sale. It went on sale between the last episode and this one. There's a poster. There's like Twitter stuff. You can go on my website. You'll see all the shows listed there. Ontario. Uh, Where are we going to be in Ontario? Uh, Toronto. Waterloo. Um, uh, Glen Morris, which is near Cambridge. We're going to be in Kingston. We're going to be in Trenton. Then we're going to pop over to New Brunswick. We're going to be in uh, Gemseg and Florenceville, Bristol and Fredericton. And then back to Newfoundland where we're going to be in St. John's and Brookfield and Deer Lake and Rocky Harbor and Twillingate and Fogel Island and Lewisport all around the circle. Uh, almost. I think we missed Morton's Harbor. Is that part of the song? Yes, that's the part of the song that we missed. Next year, we'll be in (laughs) Morton's Harbor. (laughs) Anyway, check out that. We would love to see you, and uh, it will make us feel special and less nervous if you buy your tickets now, which you can do, whether that's uh, at those local venues or through our website for the St. John Show. Okay, here we go. Conversation part two, picking up exactly where we left off with musician Eric West. Talk to me about the books that you've published, you know, that we kind of alluded to there. You've done, uh, uh, well, pre-Mike pre coming on, we talked a little about uh, a book of music by Buddy What's-His-Name and the Other Fellows, and also by Ron Hines. What was the motivation there? Where did that begin? Well, it's, I guess um, it started, I, I had this idea of doing arrangers of uh, some of the songs I collected, plus uh, the contemporary ones. As I mentioned earlier, the favorite songs in Newfoundland, which was, you know, was a pretty important thing for me. I drew on that quite a bit uh, from growing up on piano and then later on guitar adapting. But I always felt that there was need for a more contemporary version of it, you know, more playable version, but also incorporating more contemporary songs and other songs, you know, that some of which I had collected down in Presidential Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, as I think everyone recognized and, uh, you know, this important songwriter was coming around, his name was Ron Hines, and his song, Sonny's Dream, was taking over, you know, like every everybody uh, seemed to like this song. So that was actually my first publication, a single song sheet. Mm. 
and uh, the technology which just barely there for doing this with using computers in the um, in the eighties and the latter eighties and uh, so that was my first publication and um, that um, that showed me that you know that it helped me learn the ropes as far as publishing a piece of music. And then I started, uh, I got the software myself. Originally, I got someone else to imprint it. It was uh, somebody uh, I just heard from a few days ago. Um, on the computer, it was somebody who uh, studied with me at Carlton. And he he was one that I originally imprinted it for me. Mm-hmm. I did the arrangement uh, with help from another person. And uh, that was my first publication. And then after that, I started working on the first anthology, Catch a Hold of This One, which is a collection which did include a couple songs I collected myself from the Zinja Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I did a five volumes of Songs of Newfoundland uh, series. And... Um, and then during that time, uh, as I said, I work with Ron Hines and putting together a collection for him. Mm-hmm. That was a later thing, but Buddy was name, I guess, uh, in the eighties. I became friends with those guys. Um, Kevin Blackmore's originally from Gander, someone I knew a little growing up and got to know better, and uh, and uh, came to respect their material. Sure. So I started putting together a collection of their material, and uh, um, yeah, and uh, I guess later on I did a collection of my own songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, got into doing children's music, I guess, in the late eighties, eighty nine. Mm-hmm. Did a uh, we met each other, and she heard one of the songs I had written at a party. A song called Macaroni and Cheese. <laughs> and uh, she invited me to accompany her doing a, a performance that she was asked to do for the Children's Center, which is just right. starting up. And that was at the LSP Hall. Okay. Downstairs or something. And, uh, I want to get to that actually more in a second to spot, talk about that side of, of the music you've done. Yeah. But before we do, you know, I, I've as you're talking there about these publications for, you know, these songbooks, you know, it occurs to me that whenever I, I still feel this way, and I felt this way for a long time, that whenever I hear a song, just listening to it, it's it's a little like a magic trick. It's a little like it's the guy saw and the woman in half. And when I, when I take the time to learn the song, it's a little, it's that cool exploration, you know. Now I've learned the magic trick. I learned how they did it. Even when it's something that I can sort of like pick out in the air, where now obviously as a musician all these years I can go, all right, that sounds like, you know, a GDC progression or whatever. Like even if I can kind of hear it in the song initially, Mm -hmm. there's usually sometimes a big something or sometimes just a bunch of little somethings that I discover when I really sit down to actively learn the song and pull it apart and learn about the phrasing or whatever it is that I, that I just come to appreciate it in a different way as I learn, I guess, the magic trick. So I'm curious in your experience, especially in relation to, I guess, Ron and, 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 and Buddy What's-His-Name, just because they were individual songbooks where you would have done it with a lot of songs from those particular artists as opposed to 
an anthology of single songs by different people. Was there anything that comes to mind immediately about maybe their style or, you know, something you could speak to that is kind of clearly them that sort of becomes like a musical stamp that you learned? Yeah, quite, you know, Buddy Watson name had the, a certain uh, style and the complexity, I think, with their music. It, it, it's basically a simpler choral music than Ron Hines, but uh, the, the uh, choral arrangements, the harmony arrangements they did, uh, certainly I, I came to appreciate uh, how they arrived at this and, you know, the, at that, that particular um, each song had its different challenges in transcribing, and I had sometimes I had help. Then with Ron Hines, it was a whole degree of uh, harmonic complexity that mm. most uh, uh, popular and folk musicians are, really don't have. And so I brought in some uh, some help with that one, Angela Pickett, who was studying at Juilliard at the time. Mm. actually transcribed most of the melodies. I did a few of them myself, but she did most of the really complex work mm. and a uh, very gifted musician. And um, she helped analyze the songs. I worked closely with Ron, but yeah. You know, Ron's songs are not all that easy. <laughs> no, <laughs> many, many they aren't. And when you were working with Ron, was you know, did Ron, uh, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, know what he was doing? Was he going by ear in that? Or did he have like a deep theory knowledge of how he was putting things together? Uh, no, I, Ron was not uh, musically literate in the sense of being able to transcribe the songs himself. Right. And, you know, he had a, like I say, instinctual harmonic knowledge. Mm. And, um, you know, a lot of influence in different places, but yeah, it was basically an intuitive approach with, you know, many and probably most songwriters um, uh, have, but someone like Paul McCartney, for instance, was untrained as a musician. Mm -hmm. So he had that kind of ability that McCarthy has, I think, that sort of innate melodic ability that, you know, you either have, you don't. It's not something you can learn. Right. You know, and I think, uh, yeah, Ron, Ron's songs were certainly, particularly the melodies, more sophisticated than... I would say any other musicians in Newfoundland probably, you know, comparable like there's someone like Joni Mitchell, mm -hmm. you know, that just, you know, it's, it's a very subtle thing. You don't realize it until you have to write it out. Yeah. Well, we, we've actually been covering 30 for 60 on this tour. And mm -hmm. I mean, that song has some really interesting, uh, you know, one of the turnarounds is like a D major to the D minor. And then it like modulates up a step and there's you know still you know a ton of chords and seventh chords thrown in there and you and know that's just the harmony because it, if you try to transcribe like atlantic blue it's just such a subtle the melody is so subtle and you you just can't simplify it the thing about doing song books and newfoundland songs and other songs is that you don't try to do exactly what somebody's singing because it's going to change from verse to verse anyway right right yeah Right? Little ornamentations and stuff. And, you know, yeah. yeah, and you might put in some, you know, ornamentations and, and some variations. And there are little tricks for trying to get the variations from one verse to another, you know, mm -hmm. the, using smaller notes underneath to indicate changes in rhythm, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But 
Vran, it was, you know, you often had to transcribe a whole nother verse because it was so different. Mm-hmm. The first, the second take of the chords, you know, the, the verse was so different. I sort of noticed that about uh, St. John's Waltz, it seemed. Like that was a song where I'm like, this could definitely be far simpler quarterly than it actually is. Like in terms of the notes he's going to in the melody. Yeah. there You could use less chords that would complement this melody, but yeah. he doesn't though. No, and that's, that, and that's why he has such, you know, has such a, a staying power. One of the reasons that song has such staying power. I mean, the melodies themselves are, you know, are, are very interesting regardless uh, of the chords. Mm-hmm. The melodies are just what he does with the melody. And, mm-hmm. and in fact, he does it differently almost every time. Right. It's almost like a jazz kind of version of it. But, but he doesn't, it doesn't feel that way. I think that there, it's so, uh, maybe that's what you're speaking to when you're talking about McCartney and, and Ron and others like them, is that uh, you can always tell when you listen to a musician trying to put in a lot of chords. Yeah. And sometimes I think yeah. that that's, as someone who has some theory knowledge, sometimes I think that's the benefit of not, is that they're not trying to go, wouldn't it be cool if I just put this kind of chord in? Because yeah. they're just kind of doing it. And, yeah. and I feel like the audience can innately sense when you're trying to put a lot of chords in versus you just did it. Yeah, and it's, it's what's appropriate to the song. I mean, Ron's fine with doing a three-chord song. Of course, Sonny's Dream is a three-chord mm-hmm. song, and it works. But even Ron, even Sonny's Dream, and, and not many people know this but or maybe think about it, is that it's not so simple to transcribe that. And that, was, that, that gave me a whole new... First, when I published that song... Um, realize it's not going to be easy to transcribe this song to make it sound like Sonny Tree because if you take out all the syncopations you've removed the sound Mm. and it's full of anticipations and syncopations and and even though it's three chords the melody is not that easy Mm. and so it's uh, it's the kind of song that you need to learn by ear rather than note because if you notate it exactly he wouldn't be able to read it. Right. And this is sort of the paradox or the dilemma, I should say, uh, of a music publisher is that you have to deal with, uh, you got to put down on the page something that's playable, mm-hmm. but it has to come, it has to suggest what the song, the real song is. If you take away all the complexity, then you've lost the song. Right. Well, see, this is my whole song, a woman and a half magic trick thing. Yes. Is that if you wrote out the way to do it, you're like, that doesn't sound magical. But then when you see it done, you're blown away by the magic trick. So how you're right. That's a fascinating problem of yeah. how do you maintain the magic on the page when the reason you wanted to put it on the page was because the magic was just in the That's air. Right. It's a dilemma, and and, and, it, and I'm just, uh, still confronting it today because, uh, you know, when I published the book, you can never get it right. Mm. It's impossible to put out a music book that gets it right. Right, And right. you can strike a balance. Right. But for what's right for one person is not right for another. Yes. You know, some people, some, uh, you know, professional musicians want exactly what the singer was doing, right? You know, prescribed exactly right. what the... And the other is, well want an approximation that's not too hard to play right so you and you know you get the basic chords and you get the you know most of the melody there but you, you uh, and so you have to strike that balance and 
and this is this is really interesting sorry to jump in there but this is really interesting because i mean i started off as a piano player and had all those like hal leonard books and things like that and so i'm very familiar with the like easy medium hard sort of approach of books and of course when you first started music it, you have that sort of rudimentary view of like, as a kid, you're like, I just want to get to the hard. I want to be able to prove that I can play the hard version. Yeah. But it's interesting to think that the, like the hard version might be so, um, so detailed that it doesn't leave room for maybe as much personality because there's not any kind of space to stretch out there a little bit. I don't know. How do you consider that when it comes to sort of like a simple simple quote-unquote notation versus a more complex one of like a Ron tune, for instance, or? Well, it, there's a great uh, irony uh, in, uh, um, that's in, involved in pop music notation is that if you say about an arrangement of Let It Be by the Beatles and tried to play it on piano, uh, you, you would find it challenging unless you've worked out that arrangement. And in fact, Paul McCartney couldn't play it. I'm, I'm willing to bet the, the original sheet music that was you know, released for Let It Be. Right. The reason being that he never played the melody when he's, when he's singing it, right. right? He's just doing the chords on the piano, right. which is, you know, it's a nice little arrangement and, you know, it has its complexities, but it's nowhere near what the pop music publishers done because they want that would sound you know that's not what the public wants they want to play the melody right so what they've done is sort of rules you know is they put out the the what McCartney is doing to some extent the harmony uh, chordal complement and on top of that they superimpose the melody in the right hand right which is McCartney never did right and and so you've ended up with something that again only some a very advanced musician would be able to sight read. Right. Not to mention that the piano, as it gets more complicated, generally is trying to be the full arrangement that's normally for people. So now like the left hand is the bass player, right. for instance, exactly. versus like uh, the actual, if you isolated the original piano track, which in theory you would imagine everyone, well, if I can play the original piano performance of Let It Be, I must be at the top because that's the original, that's what they did. Yeah. But if you played it, you would go, well, with no one singing and no bass and drums, it doesn't sound like anything. It sounds like C, G, A minor, F, or you know, sorry, nothing yeah. else. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, the, those are the, the problems I had to sort of uh, deal with, whether to come up with uh, an arrangement that the average person could play and still feel satisfying and uh, would still represent the song. So, and when you're dealing with someone like Ron Hines, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's trying, and, and the fact that Ron, like I say, is this sort of improvisational approach to singing his song to some if you listen to different recorded versions of different songs yes you'll uh, of the same song i should say uh you'll hear very many different variations right and you hear the live version that could be completely different on a given day because he's, he's improvising around the melody mm. and uh, it's a very subtle thing you know but it's a uh, this is comparable to what a jazz singer would do mm-hmm. so you know but you know, there are many approaches to to writing a good song. And uh, I, in, in writing my own songs, um, you know, 
I'll sometimes play them for several months before I'll get around to notating them. Mm-hmm. After I notate them, I inevitably change a lot. Right. It's, it gives you that extra layer of distance and you understand, oh, that's what I did and that's what I should have done. Right. <laughs> you know, it gives you that distance. And, and, you, and often, nearly always, I'll change something about it, if not a lot. That's the, I relate to that from a recording studio perspective because I do a lot of that work and I yeah. regularly tell uh, our other artists that I'm working with or, you know, who are professionals or students who are just learning, the best thing you can do on anything, even just your iPhone, every iPhone, every phone has a recorder in it that's amazing by any standards previous to now. Mm-hmm. Just record yourself. And I do it myself. I still record everything even just rehearsals or half a song that's sort of you know and it sounds like the result is the same as what you do when you notate it because i always learn something about it when you're when it's coming out of you there's just no way to be objective you're you're doing it live you're it's coming out of you and you're trying to listen at the same time it's a very different experience than being able to hit either playback or for you to see it on the page i think and go oh i see that's that's what other people hear when i do it instead of what i hear you know, hugely educational, I think. It is. And, and, and when I did um, Heather Neary's songbook of uh, predominantly my own songs, um, I had to notate some of the songs that's, you know, you hear them song and they sound, you know, very easy, simple little things, macaroni and cheese, for instance. Mm-hmm. And then you notate it and you realize the, all the little things that were, have entered into it that you weren't aware of. Mm. when you're performing it, mm. just the little subtleties that uh, uh, you have to put in there to make it the song. Right, right. So it's, uh, yeah. But I guess, we're, you know, as artists, we're constantly sort of dealing with trying to do something direct and simple and truthful or honest, as mm-hmm. sometimes people call it, and something that's really contrived and complex and peels on a different level. So I've I've constantly gone back and forth between those two writing things that are very simple and writing things that are uh, challenging you know i've dealt with uh, some you know based some of my music on j.s bach mm. wrote his lyrics to one of his gavats mm. and made it into a song that we sang for we perform for children. Right. Yeah. Well, and this dovetails in the next thing on my mind. Like how mm-hmm. does somebody who is a classically trained guitar player who has also been a documenter of uh, sometimes simple, sometimes complex folk music come to make children's music and tour as a children's entertainer? Like how, where did that, where did that happen? It started with what song as uh, macaroni and cheese that was, was alluded to earlier. Um, it was just at a party, and Heather happened to, uh, through musical friends, she was, she was at this party and heard this song and asked me to sing at a, something she was invited to. She she was a, not a professional musician or anything, but she was invited to perform for children because mm-hmm. that was her background working in uh, music education, or not music education, but environmental education, I should say. And she was invited to, to do this children's concert as a fundraiser for the children's center, I understand. And uh, so we did the song together and a couple others and uh, we enjoyed it. So we started doing uh, a couple school gigs and then we somehow by chance we were invited to Salmon Nature Park to do uh, some music for the taping, background music or 
keep the kids entertained for taping the Sesame Street that was being filmed in Salmonier. And that led to us writing a song for Sesame Street. Mm. And that uh, that was sort of a step in taking the music more seriously. Sure. And then we were invited by CBC to do a, a, a special called No Small Wonder, environmental music uh, program for CBC television. And so I had to write a bunch of songs for that. And we ended up doing a sequel. It sort of went on from there. And we started doing concerts across Canada for the international children's festivals. Right. And that sort of took me off on a whole different path mm. from where I've been going, you know, with my music and more into writing stuff. And Heather's uh, voice was sort of the motivation. Mm. Uh, the fact that she could take any song and make it better. <laughs> Just a you know, natural singer, someone like Anne Murray, mm -hmm. who had this sort of wonderful capability with her voice and her personality. Right. So it was a... And I'm sure for you, it was just the, you know, the, there's there's always that appeal if you're if you're just a lifelong musician, there's the appeal of just going, I wonder if I could do this. I wonder what it would be like to maybe write a kid kid song, a children's song when I'd never yeah. really written them before. Yeah, I, and I never I never sort of segregated it into, uh, for the most part, uh, writing children's songs. And mm -hmm. it might have been on occasion I was specifically you know, geared towards a certain age group. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it was just writing a song. Mm. Uh, you know, when I wrote Macaroni, Macaroni and Cheese, it was just done as a song. I wasn't sort of aiming it at any audience. Right. right? It was just, it was probably one of the first songs I ever completed. I had written instrumentals and scraps of songs as a teenager and melodies and, you know, going right back to my teens. Mm. Uh, but I never, um, but at that point, Working with Heather, it was just come up with a good idea, write a song around it. You know, when the Beatles wrote Yellow Submarine, they weren't thinking this is for children or Oobla right. Doobla Da or Rocky Raccoon, you know, all these songs that really you could say are children's songs. Right. But, you know, they're just songs. Uh, you know, a ghost song that I wrote based on legend from Ladlego, The Brass Button Man has become by far the most popular song that we've done mm. over the years. Mm. And it was just written coming back from Duck Island one time in the boat, and I it just came together. And I never thought of it as a children's song, but we, you know, we do it for all agents. I just did it a couple of days ago for a cruise ship uh, clientele, mm. right? people mostly in their 70s, mm. 60s and 70s and 80s. And, you know, so it's song, a good song, it's a good song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I relate to that in the sense that I think in terms of trying to articulate that very difficult to articulate uh, concept of writing, I feel like Springsteen has said a bunch of things that I've taken to heart over the years. And one of those was related to writing The Rising. And he talked about how it was just one of those songs that it, this is very paraphrased, but basically it was you know one of those songs that you that you wait for. But when he said it, and I thought this was a great distinction, he wasn't saying that that kind of cliche of I'm a writer waiting for inspiration to strike. He was saying it in the context of going every day you get up and work and you try and you it's a craft that you try to work on, and every now and then these songs just come and how well they 
materialize is directly related to how much active work that you've put in, you know? And so looking back, it can often feel in one way, like you just, the way you just described one of those signs, you're like, I just, I just wrote this coming back from yeah. as if it was easy. Right. Which yeah. plays into sometimes the cliche that like a songwriter is just either, you know, that there's like, there, there's some Uber genius, you know, or that they can only write under very specific circumstances. But I think more often than not, it's like, it's really the collective uh, past that you've had that eventually every now and then yeah. it's like, and then I wrote this song, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, and at that time uh, <clears throat> I was writing songs all the time, sometimes a couple a day, you know, it, 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 your, your mind is just geared towards doing that activity. So you're constantly, you know, you're, you're in the mood to do it and you're working at it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when Heather moved out West in <clears throat> 97 or 96, 97, I just stopped writing songs. Right. You know, and it was I moved on through other things, um, you know, playing instrumentally, composing uh, instrumentally. Mm-hmm. I had continued to do that in a smaller way, but the focus shifted. Mm-hmm. And uh, music education, you know, has taken over uh, much of my life since then as well. It's always been there teaching music privately, mm-hmm. but now moving into other activities that yeah, so we're we're here right now in your house in, in Ladle Cove. Um, but I saw you late last week out in Grouse Morn because Vinland Music was happening, which I learned earlier today is year 19 of Vinland Music summer camp, right? Down that's the right. West Coast. So tell me a bit about that. Well, that's something that came about from my trips to Grouse Morn, which actually go right back to the 70s when I used to hitchhike there while I was still studying at Carleton in Ottawa to hitchhike to Woody Point to Gross Morn every summer and uh, with my guitar, of course. And so that, you know, became just a, a mecca for me, just a place I had to be. Mm-hmm. And I got to know the park people quite well. And, and I knew that they had a visual artist in residence program. Mm-hmm. So I suggested to my people I knew at the park, maybe uh, I could be a musician in residence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they, they went for it <laughs> so I had uh, my own place to stay for a couple weeks and um, that was in 2000 year 2000 mm-hmm. and uh, I just went all over the park playing music and talked to everybody about music and art arts generally but mm-hmm. predominantly music mm-hmm. and I took a trip down to Kill Devil and I talked to the director Mac Turner there about the idea of perhaps resurrecting the Good Entertainment Festival from which I had been in 1978. And I always thought that, uh, you know, such a festival sh- should continue or, you know, should have kept on going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then somehow the conversation, they, I think Mac indicated that there was a sort of a Scottish festival going on and maybe it was might be better to do something a little different. So... And I remember talking to my friends, uh, Gene Hughes and Christina Smith, they were talking about a music school at one point. So the idea drifted over to uh, having a music camp. Mm-hmm. So the following year, we put together, I met up with uh, Daniel Payne. Mm-hmm. I got to know a little bit when he, he was working in Trinity at the time, I think. And uh, suggested that uh, we, we try this and come mm-hmm. home. Mm-hmm. So I think the first year we had 11 children 
and it was over three days or something like that. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then gradually it developed, so we got larger numbers and more adults started coming until now it's more adults than kids. Right. And not just across Newfoundland, but all over Canada and sometimes outside Canada. Right. But uh, yeah, it's been a very rewarding thing for me. And uh, in working with some of the top artists in the province, uh, we have 10 of the artists that come to uh, teach at Finland every year. Mm -hmm. And now we have special guest artists from all over right. that come in uh, as well. So, right. But same instructors each year, we add one or two uh, over the years. And so we've got a good core group, some of the most ex <coughs> experienced people, you know, sure. Dave, Dave Panting, for instance, who played with Vicky Duff. And yep, Shirley Montague. Shirley yeah. taught uh, at, as a guest. She's never been a full-time instructor. Okay, again. okay. But she uh, she did perform for us this year and did a workshop. That's cool. true. Yeah, cool. And Gene Houston, Christina Smith, who I mentioned, Hugh um, Scott teaches songwriting. Right. Uh, Jane Dennison teaches dance. Gail Tapper is our harp instructor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Jerry Strong, mm -hmm. who I knew all the, uh, right all from 1978. Yeah, that's right. You mentioned him already. Came back to camp and, as an instructor. Right. And uh, so uh, Gary, Gary Green came in a few years ago as our storytelling person mm -hmm. so all these uh all these artists have uh, contributed a lot to uh to arts generally in newfoundland but yeah, we're very fortunate to have them together sure sure and and you also do um as a different project yet another sort of hat is the Soundbone summer music series that's uh you've been running for a number of years can you tell me a little about i mean i've been lucky enough to to play it you know tell me a little about that well that started five years ago uh, I guess uh, it sort of came out of uh, this, this hotel uh, called the Spindrift in Munchgrave Harbor Danny Goodger is uh, a great supporter of the arts mm -hmm. and uh, I guess we got discussing the idea of of uh, of having some music in uh, in this area, live music. It's, there, uh, there was another place in there is another place in Looseport called the Citadel that uh, Dean and Stevie Stairs had been running for several years, mm -hmm. and they were sort of a, I guess a motivator for having something similar in our area. So I felt that uh, developing, a little, helping develop a little circuit in this area might be beneficial for a number of artists. Totally. And also, we both Claudia and I are great consumers of art, and we, we you know, so just having this place for us to go Absolutely. was uh, it was part of the motivation. Um, I feel like that's one of the most interesting things about the live music scene here in Newfoundland over the last number of years is the evolution of the rural circuits. You know, I mean, I was a fairly early artist to place at Little House and actually teamed up with Dean um, for a tour called Listening Rooms. I believe it was 2011. And even at that time to now, just a short eight years, it's the, the, the opportunities for artists to tour in mm -hmm. smaller spots around Newfoundland has exploded. Like when I began right. touring, it was like St. John's Cornerbrook Ferry, 
Like that was, you know, maybe Gander, maybe, you know. Yeah, it's probably in my conversations to you about that, that um, that's one of the motivators for this. I'm not exactly sure where, where all the ideas came together to form this, but our school touring program through the Arts Council uh, was probably a part of that as well. We had performed in different places all over, but um, just to, and of course, you know, Trinity, I guess, was one of the first places to really get this going, uh, more theater than music, but mm -hmm. combining those different arts uh, and, and just seeing how it changed Trinity and really developed a, a big art scene there. Grossmore, of course, had been gradually developing um, this music scene, art scene. Yeah, of course. But there was very little on this coast mm -hmm. and uh, it just seemed a shame that, uh, you know, that there seemed to be something missing from, from this area. So the timing was right. And luckily, Danny Goodger was a great supporter of the arts and they had this lovely hotel with a space that wasn't being used for anything. Yeah. And just came on side and said, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, accommodate your artists and we'll give you a space to play and you do the rest. And so it, it was a good partnership. Yeah. That's excellent. I mean, I think, uh, you know, until you can lay eyes on somebody, you know, uh, it's, it's all that, that, that Newfoundland, I guess, pride in ourselves has always sort of been there, but it feels hollow without the ability to lay eyes on the artists that we're often referring to in a broad way, you know? So yes, there are the veterans who have been doing it for 50 years that eventually have, you know, solidified their names, you know, in, in our lexicon, but, but these little circuits that allow newer artists to go out and actually get into the communities and you know play those songs that otherwise maybe heard on the radio maybe here and there but getting to watch a show i mean i think that's how we actually kind of kind of helped to write our history a little bit you know yeah and and as i mentioned you know seeing gordon quentin live right life-changing event for me correct yeah. and um so, so you're just trying to create that opportunity for newer true. people exactly yeah. yeah and i know you know we've been helpful for some beginners beginning performing artists uh, and i'll quote the raven um came out just as they were i released an album and you know I, and the call was the perfect timing so they divide, decided to do a tour right because of that phone call right and so you know it sometimes just takes a little tiny thing like this going now they perform all over the world you know right right so it's uh you know, it's, it's sometimes just giving someone a leg up like that can can make a big difference. Totally, totally. Well, as we kind of come to a, I guess, a bit of a conclusion here, I'm going to ask another one of those impossible questions, uh, extremely broad, just to see what you think. Um, we've talked, we've kind of talked around this, this whole conversation, but from your own, just your own outlook and, and what you see, um, where are we right now in the sort of, the the in the music scene what what is what is the sort of temperature here in your opinion you know um uh, i'm trying to use as broad a wording as i can to make this even harder on you eric um but you know what do you see as the the, the pros and cons of i don't want to say just industry because i mean it in in not just business but the art of things now well, there are a lot of contradictions. I mean, it, some things have gotten a lot harder. It's harder to make any money, for instance, as you probably know, from selling CDs and songbooks. <laughs> you know, there's just so much of it out there. It's the ex accessibility to, to these things has meant that uh, 
you know, only a few people are really doing well with it. On the other hand, uh, there are a lot more really fine artists coming up. And, and I think that's one thing that Summer Music Series has, has really highlighted for us. It's just how much real talent is out there. And just it's it, it just neat just need the exposure, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to uh, some encouragement. So I guess I'm, I'm optimistic uh, overall, and I'm optimistic, but, you know, there's, there's, there are times when it feels like, a, you know, voice in the wilderness, particularly when it comes to traditional music. Uh, you know, it's, you rarely hear much of it on the radio and not on CBC. Mm. You know, uh, you, 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 the schools are... are have a variety some some schools are have a great program traditional music and of music in general mm -hmm. um but uh others don't so mm -hmm. i mean it's it, it always sort of shocks me when i run into a young person who's never heard old to newfoundland <laughs> you know the most kids still know i've heard eyes to buy <laughs> right, right but very and maybe saltwater joys and a handful of others yeah. but you know, there, there's still, there's still a lot of work needs to be done, and we need um, a remix of Ode. We need dubstep Ode to Newfoundland. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yes, and you know, I think the next generation, you know, will. Uh, there, there's a lot of optimistic sign. For instance, the music school, you know, is starting to take an interest in traditional music over the last few years, and uh, and so, the educators that are coming out of there need to sort of. Um, step up and and I'm, I'm not sort of saying that traditional music is somehow better and should be taught at the expense of everything else but it should be part of it it is our common language right every young person every pr person that you know from this province should be aware uh, of Newfoundland culture and songs stories dances that everybody should be aware of it they may not want to you know uh, perform it or use it in their everyday life, but they should be aware of it. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's uh, it's I guess it's my goal, my passion to to help that that along. You know, mm -hmm. totally. Well, I think that's as as good a note as any to leave off on. Am I forgetting anything that we need to talk about before we turn the recorder off? <laughs> well, just in the connection with uh, ensuring the next generation, uh, you know. Um, my partner Claudia uh, came up with this idea for the cultural ambassador program, which I, I now, you know, we're, we're, it's one of the principal things we're doing. The cultural ambassador program is a mentorship program for young artists, and uh, so, you know, these uh, young people that are coming up that want to uh, are considering careers in music mm. should have uh, a way of getting some experience. And so it's our goal now to ensure this by uh, helping them uh, with uh, mentorship and providing jobs so they can perform in their community. Mm. And so that's, uh, that's, I guess, the only thing I would add. Is that that's become a, my, our passion right now. And that's excellent. I mean, it's uh, insurance for the future, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Thanks. Uh, thanks for talking to me, Eric. Pleasure. And that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in. You can like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Please share it with people in real life too. And next week, my guest will be uh, the first 
non-Newfoundland artist on this podcast, my good friend from Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, Christina Martin. Tune in. Thanks a lot.